tired of talking about politics? So um, here's what I shared at our symposium um, in, in San Francisco. Did I mention one reason that I travel here is not just because I love you guys, but because I really like to get into red states. <laughs> just read a story that uh, the state I live in is bluer than ever. This election um, became uh, even more liberal as a number of other states became redder, at least more Republican, let's put it that way. Though I do live in a county that's quite conservative. I live, trust me, not all of California is liberal. The, the rural areas are very conservative. Uh, there's a lot of uh, agriculture, as you know, those counties are, are quite anti-liberal and, and uh, the desert counties and some of the others. But trust me, when you get along the coast, I don't know what it is about that ocean air. <laughs> you move closer to the coast, it just affects people's brains and they become liberal. Um, what I pointed out at our symposium was a particular problem that um, is deeper than the political landscape we look at. Now, we know in the last year, unless you've been hiding out in a cave somewhere, you know that every day there's some new scandal or new statement or new outrage by one or both of the candidates, right? And so you can start thinking that politics is really about all of this day-to-day -day stuff and knocking on doors and precincts, and it is. The practical politics, that is how you get people elected. Or you fly in on big jets and hold rallies for 25,000 people. I guess that we found out that that can also be effective. But more important than that, deeper than that, what's really happening in the U.S. right now is the competition of three political philosophies. Behind these differing views that you have with various candidates are essentially three different ways of thinking, three political philosophies. So if you wanted to avoid talking about, well, I don't want to talk about political philosophy, I just want to vote for somebody who basically is going to do a good job. Well, if they're going to do a good job, they're going to do a good job because essentially they have a political philosophy that you would agree with. Now, we don't talk about that much. Donald Trump doesn't stand up and say, I'm going to communicate to you my political philosophy. No, and Hillary Clinton even doesn't stand up, stand up and talk about that. She'll hit hot-button issues, which will connect immediately with voters. But beneath all that, there are competing political philosophies. I'll just enumerate three of them. Um, so essentially what's happening, I'll start with this and end with this, is we have three political, main political philosophies today in the United States that are competing for two political parties. Three political philosophies competing for two political parties. I don't know how many of you follow Major League Baseball, but in this past year in the National League, at the end of the season, there were three teams that were competing for two final wildcard spots. There were the San Francisco Giants and the New York Mets and the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Well, the Cardinals lost out. They were left out in the cold. It was the other two teams that got the spots. Much the same way, as the battle goes on, because these philosophies can overlap, but, because, but basically are mutually exclusive, two of these philosophies are going to capture the parties, and the third one, whatever it is, is going to be left out in the cold. Have we got your attention now? Doesn't that sound really cool? That's a big setup. Hope I can deliver for you. Um, 
So the first political philosophy is what most people would call classical liberalism, which is the same as modern conservatism. You might be shaking your head, what? <laughs> when I say classical liberalism, I don't mean the liberalism of Hillary Clinton, the, uh, the late bemoaned Hillary Clinton, or Barack Obama. Um, <clears throat> I mean the classical liberalism that we would identify with uh, the founders of our country. And before them, largely, though not exclusively, in England, beginning with things like the Magna Carta and coming through, if you've studied history at all, in the medieval world, there was this constant battle more and more that kings wanted to establish their authority, and little by little parliaments or groups of nobles would say, no, you need to, we need to have some of that authority too. You need to share that authority. And in England, eventually, there was the battle, constant battles, and if you know a little about English history, between parliament and the king, constantly this, this battle going on. What we would call today uh, a balance of powers. Well, when our founders came to this country, they it's odd, though they, we fought a, a great battle and with England, actually, about, about 80% of the things, we agreed with England. We agreed with that division of powers. We don't have the identical arrangement, but essentially, classical liberalism is the idea that because man is weak and sinful, power has to be shared. And it's called liberal, classical liberalism, and it's not a bad word, inherently. It means liberty or freedom. So feel free if somebody asks you, are you a conservative or a liberal? You would answer, both. Well, like that means you're like both a Clinton supporter and a Trump supporter, for example. You would say, no, that's not what I mean at all. The true conservatives really are the true liberals. That is, we believe in liberty. I guess a shorthand for this view would be individual liberty within the structure of law, the rule of law. So within the structure of law, essentially based on the God's moral law in the Bible, you have the freedom, essentially, to do what you want to do. Now, it also involves um, not just individual freedom, but religious freedom. Our founders were very strong in championing religious freedom. Uh, protection of uh, minorities, and by that I don't mean specifically uh, Hispanics or women. I mean minority viewpoints. And what document is our country guided by that specifically is designed to protect minority opinion? You know what it's called? It's called the Bill of Rights. Okay, that protects minority opinion. It protects dissent. And that's why people are allowed to peacefully march and peacefully assemble in dissent in this country. And it believes also in universal morality, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as you see in, in the Constitution. Things like that, that the founders strongly believed in, that's kind of the basis of classical liberalism or modern conservatism. Okay, that's one philosophy. Now there's, as again, that started um, oh, probably well, roughly the 13th century. It actually, in a way, it goes back to the foundational principles of the Hebrew Bible and the Old, Old and New Testaments. But as a specific political philosophy, it gradually developed and in my view, came to a really high point with the founding of the U.S. Now, that's one. Now, remember, this is a philosophy that is battling for a political party. But you 
try to think in a minute about which political party it can battle best in at this stage. Now, there's a second political philosophy, and that one is one that I'd like to call a libertarian Marxism, or you may have heard of cultural Marxism, or neo-Marxism. Now, I think maybe the best way to understand this is to contrast it with classical liberalism. Now, I said that classical liberalism believes in a great deal of individual liberty, but of course, not anarchy, within the context of overarching law. You have to obey the law. The, the cultural Marxists or libertarian Marxists would say that is the problem. What the founders believed is the problem. And here's why they would say this. And I'm not going to render a verdict on it. I think it's horrid. But let me just tell you what they will teach. The problem, when you give people that kind of liberty, is their innate differences come out to create a society where people are not all the same, not always treated the same. For instance, you give people freedom, you sort of back off, the state backs off, they have the freedom. Some people have the freedom to get up early and work very hard and make wise investments and make a lot of money. And other people don't work hard and they don't make as much money. Or they might work very hard and still not make a lot of money. There are some people who feel oppressed because, well, let's take, for example, um, people who have a different sexual orientation. You live in a society that is a classically liberal society, though they would, that society would not specifically persecute uh, homosexuals or anybody else. None, they might say, you know, that's really a bad way to live and you should not be living that way. And I'm not going to rent the house that I have available to two men or two women who are living together in a sexual relationship, and I have the freedom to do that. In things like that and others, the cultural Marxists say the problem is that's not really fair. Everybody is not equal, but everybody, we should rig the system or change the system so that everyone has access to the same things and everyone should be treated and respected for what and who they are. Basically, libertarian Marxism exists to redefine or destroy the authority of, of other institutions that can make decisions about people. And the two main ones are the family and the church. I mean, right? Don't we believe that the Bible teaches that in the family uh, there are the dad and the mom, the husband and the wife, and they make decisions for their minor children. And um, the wife is subject to a very loving and gracious husband, and the husband honors the wife, and the children grow up, and this sort of perpetuates itself. But to cultural Marxists, that's not really fair. I mean, shouldn't everybody have a right not to feel subjugated? They hate hierarchies. You know what I mean by that, that one is higher than another in any sphere of life. So the goal of cultural Marxism is that long word, egalitarianism, or equality. Now, the word equality is fine. Uh, our Constitution says all men are created equal. But there's a different view of equality that cultural Marxists hold than the classical liberals hold. Some of you might know where I'm going with this. Let's take um, an example of uh, what's the what's the fame what's a famous let's take the Oklahoma City Thunder. How many are we have any Thunder fans here? 
Oh, go Thunder. No, I guess not. Okay. <laughs> all right. At least some of you might be Kansas City Chief fans, right? Okay. Yay. All right. So let's say that there is a high school football team in Pratt that says, that sends an invitation to the Chiefs and says, you know what? We want to do a big charity event. And we would like uh, the Chiefs, if you're willing, to come down here and uh, make people pay money and play our high school football team. It would be really fun. People would come in everywhere and pay money and maybe give the money to the school. And so the Chiefs come down and play the Pratt team and beat them 56 to nothing, let's say. Now, as long as the rules of that football game are the same for everyone, as long as it's 100 yards from goal line to goal line, and it's the width, what is it, 40 yards, whatever the width is, and as long as the refs call the same plays rightly and fairly on both sides, then it's a fair game. It doesn't matter if the Chiefs win 56 to nothing. The high school team can't say, or one of the moms or one of the high schoolers say, it's not fair. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're older, or whatever. If the rules of the game are the same for everybody, it's fair. But essentially what um, cultural Marxists would do is say, you know, those poor young guys can get their feelings hurt, and they deserve to be treated better than that. So what we're going to do is whenever the Chiefs are going for a goal, they're actually going to have to go 180 yards to score a touchdown. And the high school, Pratt high school team is only going to have to go 40 yards. And when the field goals are kicked for Pratt, we're gonna, the goalposts are going to be lowered. They're going to be put up way, way high. That'll make things fairer. So essentially, cultural Marxism wants to rig the political system and rig the law to create an equal end. So it's equality of processes versus equality of results. Classical liberals, conservatives, believe in equality of the process itself. If the rules apply the same to everybody, it's fair. It doesn't matter if the results are different. It's fair if the rules are fair to everybody. By the way, which of these two is biblical? Does the Bible speak about just weights and measures and that the law must be the same for rich or poor and for everyone? Classical liberalism is based in that sense very clearly in the Bible. Cultural Marxism is not. Essentially what the cultural Marxists wanted to do to accomplish this is to destroy or redefine the family and the church because they stand for hierarchies. And the Essentially, one of the great early ones to hold this, how many of you have heard of the thinker from the 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau? You've heard of Rousseau before, the French philosopher? Um, his ideas tended to fuel the French Revolution. He basically struck a big bargain with the French. He says, if you give me a power, an authority, strong enough to destroy the authority of the family and church, then I will destroy that authority and you'll be free from the church saying that you can't have premarital sex and you have to go to church on Sunday and all of these other oppressive teachings. You can be free to live your life as you want. And in the family, if you're a woman, you can be free to go out. You don't have to take care of your children. It's not fair that men don't have to take care of the children equally and they get to go out. I will free you from all of that, but to free you from that, I have to have a power with a strong muscle to destroy or change or redefine the family and church. What was that power or muscle that he wanted? State. The state. Now you know why cultural Marxists really like to capture the state, because the state 
is powerful enough to enforce a kind of equality of results. Because once you back out of the way like the classical liberals do and say you're free to follow the dictates of your own conscience within the broad sphere of law, not harming other people, and um, live your life essentially as you want to and work hard or not work hard, but you'll have to bear the consequences of all your decisions. Once you back out of the way and allow that, people's latent differences are going to come about. Again, cultural Marxists would say that is the problem. And so they try to elect people politically. You understand this is basically a cultural vision and not a political vision? For them, it's not that they worship politics as an end in itself. Don't make that mistake of assuming that these cultural Marxists, and basically this is the governing vision of our society, most of the major universities and most of the major thinkers embrace what I've called, they might not call it that, but essentially that's what it is, this sort of neo-Marxism. They hold this view. It's not just that they want power for its own sake, though I'm sure that's in their mind, is capturing politics, they can use it to create the utopian society. They can engineer a particular kind of society. That's why they want it. Okay? So, I'm almost done, I promise. We've got classical liberalism, and we've got libertarian or cultural Marxism. Now, there is a third political philosophy that originally is the oldest of all. Well, it's not as old as the Bible, but still very old. It has really come to the fore um, in the last 20 or so years, not just in the U.S. It's sweeping Europe. It's been around since almost since the fall, and I'd like to call it nativist populism. Now, nativist populism is in distinction from the other two. It basically believes that, and it started with families and tribes whose view as is you're a part of the in crowd or a part of the out crowd. Now, if you're a part of us and our family and our tribe and later on our country, then that's really cool and you get a lot of protection. And you know, a couple, two or three thousand years ago, if they lived on a particular plot of land, there's other land over there and they saw people on there, oh, they, they got more food over there. Well, we need more food. Well, let's just go kill them and take their food. Well, that's sort of a crude form of it. More recently, it's essentially the idea that we and our tribe and our group and those people who look like us and talk like us and act like us, we're sort of all a part of the, of the same group. And our goal is to sort of perpetuate ourselves and our group, particularly people that look and act and talk like us. Now, does everybody understand? That's essentially the, the foundation of nativist populism. Now, it's populist in this sense. It doesn't really care much for institutions like uh, in the U.S. situation, like Congress, uh, courts, or things like that. It's basically a stress on what the will of the people is. And it really does tend to rely on direct democracy. Um, it, it, it doesn't like cultural Marxism. It really couldn't care less about why well, you feel oppressed because you're a homosexual and somebody on the street walked on the other side of the street. Well, we're not going to fight for you. The important thing is you're a part of the in crowd. Okay? That's essentially the nativist populist view. Now, what nativism and populism tends to hold and historically is that it's highly anti-elitist. 
it's anti, it's both anti-elitist with respect to cultural Marxism, and it's anti-elitist with respect to classical liberalism. Wherever the elites are, they're the bad people. Or the really smart people are that are trying to influence our lives. These are, these are the bad people. And so we need to get ourselves a very straight-talking, very strong, muscular leader who can crash all of this stuff so we can really get our way or get things back to the way they should be. Now, this has happened. Don't worry. I'm not suggesting this only happened in 2016. This has happened a number of times historically in many different countries. This nativist populism, I say, is opposed both to cultural Marxism, which it despises, and even to classical liberalism, which it's not terribly in favor of. Now, I'm going to conclude, and then you might have some questions or comments. These three political philosophies are at work in the United States today. Because we only have two political parties that are trying to capture Oh, uh, these three political philosophies that are trying to capture these two political parties, only two of these philosophies can really win out. Now, as I said, they can overlap somewhat, and they have historically. But in the end, two of them will win. Now, here's what's happened in the United States. Basically, from our founding, well, let's just go to 1860 when the Republican Party was founded. We can go back to the, the Whig Party, but let's just go from, from 1860, Abraham Lincoln and so on, the Democratic and Republican Parties. Basically, those parties from 1860 to, let's just roughly cut it off at 1960, both of those parties espoused classical liberalism, though emphasized different aspects of it. What happened since the 1960s, and particularly in the 70s and 80s and 90s, is this. The Democratic Party came to adopt cultural Marxism. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are essentially... Uh, libertarian Marxists. Now, there are other things, too, but they're driven by this, and you really saw that in the last election. Uh, do you remember how it was a, revealing? How many of you saw the final debate? The, I think the, the third was the best debate, I think. Chris Wallace was the one that uh, moderated the debate. The first question was about the Supreme Court. Hillary Clinton was asked first. She answered very clearly, very disastrously, but very clearly. She says, it's very clear. I want to nominate people on the Supreme Court that are going to protect the LGBT community, going to protect all of these marginalized people in our society, because that's essentially the goal of the Supreme Court is to protect people that are marginalized. Well, the founders would have said, that's weird. The goal of the Supreme Court is to interpret the Constitution, not protect any one class against the other. You see, she was espousing very classic libertarian Marxism or cultural Marxism, you see. So um, that's what happened. That's what's happened to the Democratic Party. Over the last 10 or 15 years, cult, uh, the, there's, become a, there's come a conflict in the Republican Party between classical liberalism and nativist populism. Now, what we had to, um, on Tuesday was the victory of a nativist populist candidate, though a lot of classical liberals would have voted for him because they absolutely deplored the culturally or libertarian Marxist candidate. What is happening right now in Washington, D.C., right now in Trump Tower, here's what's happening. You have people that are nativist populist philosophically that are talking with people that are classical liberals, figuring out how this thing is going to work. It's not just a matter of logistics, who's going to be chief of staff, 
and who's going to get this position. I know that's very important, but there are philosophical issues that are at work here. Now, is it possible that uh, Donald Trump can work with classical liberals? Well, I would suggest he's going to have to because a number of the leaders in Congress, the Republican-dominated uh, uh, dominated Congress, are given to classical liberalism. So you may have noticed that, you may have noticed that Donald Trump uh, and Paul Ryan did disagree a little bit. You may have noticed that. And it wasn't just because of the terribly outrageous video. They do have real philosophical differences. They have agreements, too, but they also have differences. Oh, incidentally, there's also a populism, not just on the right wing, but on the left wing. Who was the left wing populist candidate? Bernie Sanders. See? There is a populism in the left wing, Bernie Sanders, who really stirs people up. And what is his message? Everybody up there is corrupt. All of these things are corrupt. We need to break, all, break Wall Street, break this corruption, elect me, and I'll get rid of these corrupt people. And he's, of course, charged on Hillary. She's just too close and hobnobbing with all the big banks, and all the big banks got us in trouble, and therefore we need to elect me. Though, of course, eventually he supported her. <clears throat> so essentially what we have now, different from what we had from about 1860 to 1960, then we had... One political, or two political parties basically sharing one political philosophy. Now we have three political philosophies trying to capture two political parties. Now, did I thoroughly confuse you? Did that make any sense? Would it sound really dumb? Or Any questions or comments? 